0: In tech, the title CTO or chief technology officer can mean a lot of different things ranging from the internally focused leader of all things software development through to the externally focused technical field leader. Our guest today, Jennifer Byrne, held the latter role at Microsoft for nearly four years before venturing out on her own as an independent consultant, speaker and author. Of course, she didn't start there, having worked her way up into the role via engineering, sales, business development, and security roles. Along her journey, she's held titles like information security analyst, sales manager, VP of sales, VP of global alliances, and chief security officer for the likes of Symantec, McAfee, Dambala, and Microsoft. So stay tuned as we catch up with Jennifer Byrne and hear how this psychology major from UC Santa Cruz built a career in sales. And technical leadership.
1: You're listening to the Development Tour Podcast, hosted by Grant Ingersoll. We have one goal on the show to help you build a successful career in tech, no matter where you're from or where you're going. We do this by showcasing interesting people working across a variety of roles in tech and deep dive into their why. If you want to learn more, please visit our website at developmentor.com or follow us on Twitter at developmentor. Hey,
0: Jennifer, welcome to the show.
2: Hey, Grant. Nice to be here.
0: Now I understand you just uh, you just had a fairly big move, right? Moving from uh, Seattle to Arizona. Is that right?
2: I did. Yes. So uh, it's cold everywhere else, but not here.
0: Ah, very nice. And how are you transitioning from you know the the green and the the big mountains to the red rock and the sun being out all day?
2: I really love change. So. Just the fact that it is a change is wonderful. The actual change, so going from, you know, what in Seattle right now is pretty cold and damp to uh, warm and dry. This is the best part of the year in Arizona. It has been pretty fantastic. I actually have no complaints at all. I love the sun. It makes people happy. So uh, it makes me happy too. Yeah, it's great.
0: Yeah, I, I, one of my early consulting gigs I had did for the University of Phoenix. So I was in Phoenix in January and it was like so amazing. And then I was like, oh, this is so great. And then a few years later I had to go back to Phoenix for some reason and it was like July and I was like, oh. <laughs> so, yeah. Well, here in North Carolina, we're we're in that kind of in-between state where it's it's really beautiful and sunny out, but it is starting to get cold nevertheless, it's my favorite time of year. Well, let's kick things off here, Jennifer, by having you take us back to those undergrad days. I think I mentioned you were a psychology major, you know, a, a banana slug, as they say, at UC Santa Cruz. And I would love to have you fill us in on those first, you know, getting that degree, as well as those first few roles in tech, you know, what inspired you to pursue that degree? And then how were you thinking about your career as you graduated from Santa Cruz?
2: Well, I graduated at the age that a lot of people graduate from college, which is, you know, like 22. I mean, some people figure out what they want to do when they're 22. I think the vast majority of us don't. But I really thought I was going to be in social services, maybe actually, you know, be an actual psychologist. I had been interested in that field for a long time, and I always knew that was going to be my major. And I actually pursued that after college. Um, It was a little bit of happenstance. I got offered a job to run a nonprofit back in Seattle, and I, I put myself through school. So you know, I was working at least one full time job all the way through, loaded up with you know debt. I had a car that didn't run anymore, and I you know was always trying to get it moving around the block so I wouldn't get a ticket. I mean, I just I needed a job, and and I you know got this really awesome opportunity to be director of a nonprofit, which was in my field, and I did that for a couple of years. And then, you know, life has this way of sort of taking you along in directions that you hadn't quite anticipated. I got married and my husband joined the Foreign Service and we moved from Seattle to D.C. And I mean, I thought this was fantastic. I didn't want to leave my career, but I at that point I'd been overseas once on my honeymoon, but otherwise never left the States. And I thought, oh, my God, this is the best opportunity in the world. I was thinking, oh, I'm going to like hobnob with diplomats. It's going to be fantastic. And we did that. So we moved to DC for uh, about six months and went through training and then lived in Senegal for two years. My daughter was born. We were there and then moved to Australia for two years. My son was born in Australia Then came back to DC. And what happened was that we came back and I, you know, like we couldn't afford for me not to work when you're, you know, in the government overseas, everything's paid for, you come back and it's not. So I thought, oh my gosh, I need to go get a job. I had these two little kids and, and I, couldn't find anything in the nonprofit sector that paid me enough to actually afford daycare and dry cleaning and, you know, commuting expenses. And so it was this really hard realization, like, is this the career I really want? Do I feel so passionately about this that I'm willing to work and just have a really sort of tough financial scenario or not? And so, you know, what I thought I wanted to do at 22 what I ended up doing, and then, you know, sort of landing back in DC, you know, five years later, things change. And, you know, you sometimes wake up and realize, you know, maybe what what drove you before isn't what's driving you now. So very practical decision to to go into tech. And I I would love to tell you, Grant, that it was this noble thing, you know, and I was one of those people that bought my first computer with my allowance when I was eight and I was not, not, not who I was. I really made a very practical decision because it was the late 90s and, you know, a job in a nonprofit even a management job in nonprofit was $25,000 a year at best. And there were these ads in the Washington post because back then, you know, it was all classifieds and they said, look, go back to school for a year and um, you can make $80,000 a year. And I was like, okay, done. So I did, I, I you know interviewed a whole bunch of schools in Virginia. I found one that had a night program for a year. I took it. And then halfway through that experience, one of the guys teaching a networking class, happened to work for a VAR in, in D C and in Alexandria, Virginia. And he said, Hey, we need a part time network admin. Do you want the job? And i Yeah, absolutely I totally want the yes. So um I took it. And that was a, kind of the that was the start.
0: Wow, it's fascinating. I, I mean this is a exactly what i want to highlight on this show because you know and we've certainly had on the folks who come in and you know like they were born with a computer in their hand and you know much like our our kids probably were these days but to come in later and come in from a practical you know such a practical like i need to make x amount of money you know what was that like going back to school for a year experience like for you like how did you pick what you wanted to study what school all of that kind of stuff
2: to answer that, well, you have to time travel back to 1996, I think it was, or 90, 95, 96, 97, that time period. There were very few universities that had big computer science schools, right? It, that was a, It was a thing back then. It was kind of like you couldn't pick the wrong school because the need and the demand was so high for tech people, and there were so few options that you honestly could go anywhere. And I did, I went to a little college called Stafford College. I don't know if it still exists in Virginia. I looked at the ads. (laughs) I wish I could tell. I had this really great algorithm that I ran across, but no. And I interviewed three schools, you know, and I picked one and it had open enrollment and it was starting like in a week. And literally this whole thing went down in a couple of weeks. I didn't spend a lot of time thinking about it because I could tell, that there weren't a lot of wrong choices I could make. So it sort of didn't matter.
0: So once you were in, I'm curious, did you like, you said you ended up working as a network admin. Did you find like you had a inclination for that? Did it come alive once you were doing it? Like, what was the experience like? Or was it just like, hey, I need a job and I'm just going to grind through this?
2: No, it's so funny. I love, I actually love talking about this because I think what you think your job is going to be and then what it really is, and what you think you're gonna like and what you actually like are often not the same thing. You know, I had this very romantic vision of this job, like, oh, it's gonna be great, you know, I'm gonna learn all this stuff, and I'm gonna have projects and I'll start a project, then I'll get to work on and I'll learn a bunch of stuff and I'll finish that project and I'll have all these people around me who are gonna help me because they know what they're doing. And you know, that's just not what it was like at all. There was again so much demand. For tech talent. It was booming and there were never enough people. And so I just got dropped in, right? And so, you know, I'm pulling paper out of the back of the printer and I'm plugging in cables. So it turned out that this consulting agency was led by some of the first uh, cybersecurity folks that came out of Navy Spawar in San Diego. And so they were doing all this InfoSec consulting for government agencies. And I had no idea that any of that, I didn't know anything about cybersecurity. But because I was a you know, like I had a heartbeat <laughs> and a few things, they would put me on these jobs. But here's the other thing, and I, I love this as career advice, like I had already run a nonprofit. I started, you know, as the employee number one with no revenue, and when I left three years later, you know, there were, I don't know, 10 or 15 of us. We had, I think it was $300,000 in revenue, which is, it was a big deal at the time for a nonprofit, huge caseload, I, I built that business. And then I, when I was in Australia, I really liked to write. And so I took this correspondence course on children's literature and I ended up getting a job as a writer. And when I was in Senegal, there was a nonprofit running the Community Welfare Association for the embassy. And I ran that because I had some nonprofit experience. And so, you know, I was able to piece together all these things to do, you know, when I was overseas and that actually really helped me in my tech job. Although I had... No idea what I was doing at the time from a technical perspective. I could write and I could I could be trusted to, you know, have lunch with government officials and I could write, I wrote security policy handbooks and then I would implement the policy that I wrote. You know, so there were a lot of those skills that I was able to apply that made me very attractive, even though it wasn't technical.
0: I was gonna say, so you had some technical experience, but maybe not specifically in information security. Is that what I'm hearing right?
2: Well what I, what I mean is that you know, like I was always being put on jobs that were probably you know would have needed somebody with more experience than me, like go and install an intrusion detection system for USDA, which I think I can say now because it was so many years later. It was one of my first 10 projects, and I literally I, I didn't know UNIX, and so this Solaris box shows up, a Sun server, you know, Solaris, and I'm opening the manual. Like, okay, how do you use your USR forward slash? <laughs> I'm like, I, I had to learn it that way. That's what I mean by you get that kind of experience on the job.
0: Yeah, no, that's fantastic. Well, and so the communication skills come in here as well. I'm curious then, so like bring me forward a little bit more. So you've got this consulting gig. It leads into the information security. Were there other roles before you made the leap into sales or was the leap into sales and kind of business development the next step on your career?
2: So I ended up doing that for a while for this consulting company. And I and you know, you eventually get good, right? You do learn how to do things. And I ended up on a, it was a sub on a project where Lockheed Martin was the contractor. And I was working in a lab all day long, like at the lab where you have to swipe your badge like four times through four different doors. And then you're just stuck in this room. And it was, it was really fun work. We were building a lot of cool stuff, but I was dying. Like I don't, I was, I saw two people a day. <laughs> And this one guy said, you know, you have great people skills. What are you doing in here? And I'm like, well, you know, and he said, you should try to be a pre-sales engineer. I think you would really like it. I have a friend who works at a company called Accent Technologies, and she's a manager of a pre-sales engineering team. And so do you want me to introduce you? And I... Said sure, right? I didn't know a lot about what he was talking about, but um, the idea of just you know actually being able to talk to somebody <laughs> during the day sounded great. I mean, in all seriousness, like it really was a kind of a neat opportunity, and you know, it was competitive. And so, I got a job there uh, as a pre-sales engineer working for with government clients, and that was a company that was later acquired by Symantec. So that was Accent Technologies, was all the enterprise security stuff that made Symantec an enterprise security company. So I yeah, so I did that for a little while and I've then moved into sales after that. I think I realized that, you know, like as a pre-sales engineer, you have to make everything work. You're always running the demos, you're going in and, you know, you're highly accountable for really deeply understanding your technology. It's hard work. And I was paired up with this nicest sales guy ever. And yeah, you know, here I am at the front of the room with the engineers, fielding questions and trying to get stuff to work. And we were doing a lot of network security, so I was always tapping into their network. And you know that just is a nightmare. And, and then Gary's in the back of the room having Starbucks with the CIO. <laughs> One of us actually. And then we go outside and I get into my you know like ten year old Acura, and Gary you know hops into his convertible Mercedes. And I thought oh, you know hey, there's this, there's something like very wrong in this scenario here. So maybe sales is something. I want to go do that That was like my first inclination. And then really what happened was that I just like wanted to figure out what else is there to do inside of a company? Like, am I going to just be a pre-sales engineer and my career is going to be being a pre-sales engineer at 20 different companies? Or am I going to just be like in cybersecurity or in a certain company, but do a lot of different things within the company? What do I align to the job or the company slash industry? And I actually was really like, I, was, I had that epiphany, like, what, what should I do? And I made this decision that I knew I don't like doing the same thing for a really long period of time, but I was building this expertise and domain knowledge. So I thought, I'll try to do different things within Symantec. So I decided to go try to be a salesperson. And of course, I had the inspiration of Gary's convertible Mercedes. And so um, that was how I made that switch.
0: Well, so now, you know, and I've been in sales engineering and I've seen sales a lot myself. I'm, I'm, I'm chuckling to myself as you're describing this because I've seen this too, but you know, often there's the other side of sales. So now contrast that for me a little bit because, you know, like one of the things sales engineers never see, don't see as much from salespeople is all the behind the scenes, you know, getting beat up by procurement, having to deal with legal, getting yelled at by the customers when, you know, the stuff doesn't deploy. Like, you know, you become that point of contact. Contrast for us and our listeners a a bit here, like sales engineering and technical sales.
2: I think that one of the views or misperceptions that people have towards salespeople is that that work doesn't seem difficult. And of course it's not technical. And so there's that, but it's actually extraordinarily difficult work to do. And it caught me by surprise for many of the reasons you just talked about. Like there's a lot of business aptitude that you have to have or acquire in order to sell because you're trying to you know create financial transactions and measure value and create reliable ROI models and you know understand total cost of ownership all that is finance and that was very far outside of my domain so a lot of that to learn but the harder thing was figure out the sales strategy especially for technology the first move i made into a sales role, I was selling managed security services, which was terrible. And I did that for maybe nine months. And then, um, but I used that experience to get myself into an actual product sales role. And this was at Symantec. But I was selling antivirus software. And so if you were back in the day selling antivirus software for Symantec, you were competing with McAfee and Trend. And there was very little difference in the performance of those products so you know you spend a year or so just beating your head against the wall like how do i convince these customers to make a switch or to buy my stuff and what i finally figured out and this is the art of the sale is that you're not trying to sell them the value of the product as it is today because as we know products always change what you're really selling them or what they're really buying or is doing is an investment like they're they're not making a purchase they're making an investment and investments are all about What's going to happen in the future? Where is the technology going? How is this technology going to help me do the things I want to do? And that was the moment when I really realized that my strength, and it was kind of because I had good communication skills and I practiced that, you know, all the way across my career, not just my tech roles, that I was able to help people understand how technology could influence their non-tech outcomes. Like how technology could help Boeing build better airplanes, how technology could help Starbucks brew a better cup of coffee. And then they were making investments. They're like, well, I don't see your product has that capability today. But what I hear you saying is that if we partner with you, then these are the kinds of conversations we'll get to have for the future. And, and, then I, and I did really well. So um, that was kind of the turning point for me in sales.
0: Makes a ton of sense. You know, real quick as an aside, in there, you mentioned you practiced communication, and that's one of the strong themes that comes through in all the people I interview, or at least a number of them. What are some perhaps practical things that you had to work on in terms of improving your communication skills?
2: I had to practice. The structure of a presentation, I think that was the hardest thing for me. I've always been pretty good. I was on the debate team and, you know, I, I did a lot of speaking and stuff on stage as a kid and growing up. And so there's, a, there's an element of that that I've always been pretty comfortable with. What was really hard for me was learning how to structure a story or an argument in a compelling way. Because I come at sales from a tech background, and so I wanted to talk about the technology. I really wanted to tell you about all 10 features. I just It took me a long time to break out of that and to realize that it's not that a customer doesn't need to hear all that, but you need to package it in a story way. And there's a lot of that out there right now. At the time, I remember using this methodology called SCIPAB, and that's an acronym, S-C-I-P-A-B. Basically, it's this idea that as humans, we have always learned things in an oral unwritten way. Like we only started learning how to write relatively recently. So our brains are wired to hear things in story form, because that's how we remember things. It's the oral history of the human race. And so if you can use a construct of a story, you can figure out how to tell somebody anything in a way that's interesting to them. And that was probably the hardest thing. It took a lot of practice, but I had to do it because I really felt like what would happen for me if I was in front of a lot of customers trying to talk about a technology, you could just see, you could see them drop off. I wasn't keeping them and entertaining them and, you know, sparking their curiosity. And I needed to do that to to do well in sales.
0: I was a field facing CTO for a long time too. And it was the exact same thing of that epiphany of, Hey, it's the story folks. Like you have to have a story that is relatable so that they can picture themselves as the hero in that story. And and it's so true. So for our listeners out there, you know, this is something to really think hard about. And even in, if you're just always going to be a software engineer, I see this so much of like software engineers who can't tell a story and their projects suffer, their careers suffer, et cetera. So this isn't just for salespeople. Continuing on here, Jennifer, I mean, I think we're faced with the pervert or the question many of us are faced is, you know, do I continue as an individual contributor or do I, you know, quote unquote, climb the ladder and go into management? And I often see, especially with salespeople, because, you know, the commissions can be so large that a lot of salespeople are just, hey, I'm totally happy just being in sales and carrying the quota and making my number and getting my commissions, but I believe at some point along the the way here, you you made the leap into management. Tell me about that inflection point for you. What led you to that? How did you think about it? How did you approach it?
2: There's always been this balance in my career uh, around, you know, money on one side of the equation, right? And uh, all of that, you know, benefits, blah, 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 blah. Which is, you know, under the first decision to to get into tech in the first place. And then the, what do I really want to do? Like, how do I make the best of this career? I got into this career for very practical reasons. I've always known that and been honest about that. But can I learn to love what I do? A lot of people, you know, don't love what they do. And so our choice is that we have to figure out how to learn how to love what we do. And for me, that meant always trying to challenge myself and and do different things. That was the whole idea of taking different roles within, you know, within the cybersecurity industry or a particular company. For management, I think I felt like I had it in me to be a good leader. And I think this happens for a lot of people. But, you, you know, some people find themselves just being the de facto leader in the group. And find themselves as the person who their peers turn to for help. And that was me. And I you know, so I was already doing that in a very de facto way. And the management side of it was this really interesting challenge. And so I'd already honed a lot of business skills. You know, I'd learned to read 10Ks and financial statements and build value models and do all of that. Uh, which was, you know, new experience, but management meant doing that on an exponentially larger scale, right? Because now you're looking across your entire team and all their clients and customers. You're having more sophisticated conversations within your company. You could be with your CEO or your CFO and all of that just sounded like I had to figure out how to, how, how to do it. You know, it was just a really big challenge for me. And so at the time at Symantec, if you wanted to be in management, you had to go through this internal training program. It was hard to get into, but I got into it, and I did that for nine months with this small cohort of people. We spent, you know, a couple of days a month together and went on retreats, and and that just really inspired me because I saw that in all of corporate America, middle managers are the unsung heroes. Make everything work. And I loved the challenge of that. Like, let me be one of those people. Let me be somebody who can actually make a big difference, who, you know, is needed. And along the way, I get to learn a whole bunch of skills. And I just got super energized by that idea. And um, anyway, so I I did well in that program. Then I landed my first uh, sales manager job shortly after that
0: you know, what are some of those early lessons, like both good and bad? Like, you know, what did you struggle with as that first man at time manager? And what are you particularly proud of?
2: I didn't know I was so insecure. I remember walking around, you know, it's the, the dream where you're on stage and you don't have your, you know, forgot your lines or, you know, all of that deep insecurity stuff. I think I just lived in that for the first year or two. I had a lot of salespeople who were older than me, a lot of older men specifically, and uh, some of them were fine and some of them were not fine. I had to let a few people go in that first year. Some of them were the people who didn't like me. I had to let them go. And uh, these were just tough, tough, tough lessons. And they really make you think to yourself why in the heck, Is it me that's, you know, in this role? Why do I deserve to be here? But of course, you're so insecure that you don't even want to tell anyone that you're thinking that, right? So you, and it's just a lot of internal tension, you know, and so I I always think about that when I see, or as I've hired people into their first management positions, I, I know it's coming, right? It's such an exciting thing. And it's such a great validation, you know, that your company gives you when they promote you into that position. It's a real position of trust. And yet I, you know, think you're just going to go through this trough of despair. It's going to be okay, but it's going to be terrible. So a lot of that um, was tough for me, learning how to live with that, learning how not to, that I didn't need to be the big voice in the room. And ultimately, and this took me many, many years. um, I was in CTO roles by the time I really figured this out. It's really okay to not have the answers. It's really okay to be surrounded by people who are much smarter than you. It's really okay just to I used to put myself in the corner, like in team meetings, they'd all be around this long conference room table. And then there would always be a little table in the back where the catering sits, you know, in these conference rooms. And I would literally go sit on the little table in the back, just so I wasn't even visually in the conversation because I wanted people to talk. Like the best stuff came when I kind of wasn't in the room. So that was kind of the turnaround from that lesson. And I think I ultimately learned how to do that pretty well.
0: I wish there was an option for that with, you know, Zoom and Google Meet these days of like, you know, C-level silent stalking a meeting as opposed because now you can't hide anymore. I, I, I totally feel what you're, you're saying because like, you know, just you being there as a leader, it's a Heisenberg effect, right? Like, it, you know, now all of a sudden, everybody behaves in a different way and it can shut down a lot of what otherwise would have been really good conversation. So you're at Semantic, and then I think you go to McAfee and then Dombala. like kind of progress us through of some of these key inflection points as you lead up to Microsoft. Cause I want to spend some time on Microsoft because obviously that's a big part of your career. And you started having like C level titles and things like that. But bring us forward into now, you know, you go from sales management up into sales leadership and and I think a few other roles.
2: I, by the time I left Symantec, knew that I did not want to be in a direct sales role again, or you know, in middle management. If I if they'd asked me to be the VP of sales worldwide, that would have been a wonderful opportunity. But short of something that was probably never going to happen at that point in my career, I felt like I'd learned everything I could learn. And so I left Symantec and I looked around for a little while. I took about three months off and decided to You know, just figure out, like, do a little bit of a gut check on: is this what I really want to do? Like, I'm building my career now. I'm at a point where I can command a pretty high salary. You know, my kids are in, you know, middle school and high school, and so everyone's super busy, and we're working really hard. Can I just take a moment to figure out if this is what I really want to do? And I did. And I looked around at, you know, a bunch of different things. Um, I actually started a little business on the side. I opened a smoothie store, and you know, did did a few things that were just completely unrelated to tech. And yeah and then i I decided, you know what? I missed the energy, and I missed the challenge. and so you know, it's interesting, like what I realized that I really love is the challenge itself. like I'm a trail runner, right, and i or, and I like doing distance things, and I like to do a lot of hiking. And I think sometimes as I'm, you know, it's 95 degrees in Arizona, I'm dying. I love that too. It's the challenge of it. So I went to McAfee and I moved into alliances. So I decided, all right, let's keep going. This is the career I want, but I need a different role. I need to go learn a new competency and continue to kind of make my way around the inside of a corporation. And that was the next logical leap Because it still leveraged a lot of sales skills, but it was a highly creative work, I would be not selling, but you know, creating partnerships, which is, you know, MOUs and just different kinds of arrangements. And I thought that would be super cool. So I got a job at McAfee doing that. And then really, for the time I was at McAfee, even after they were acquired by Intel, I just kept trying to create new things for me to do. And I got pretty good at it. Like there were a couple different different, so I started a partner ecosystem. Then I, uh, when we were acquired by Intel, I got a role integrating the sales forces. So the Intel Salesforce with the McAfee Salesforce, which is really complicated work because of very different selling styles. Mm-hmm. And I did that because I just kept going to the C-level folks at McAfee and saying like, give me a shot. I think I can do this. This is what I think we need. I think I can do it. I'm not going to ask you for any headcount and you feel free to fire me. Like if I'm not doing a job, it's fine. I get it. I'll, I'll move on. I think because I'd taken that three months off when I came to McAfee, I didn't have the mindset of, you know, I had an ego around my job, you know, that I had to have it for a long time. I was okay. If it didn't work, I would just find something else. But it was more important that I do something fun and new and challenging than I do something that I knew I would be good at. So I had a, fun, a bunch of fun, different jobs there. Uh, but Mac we did get acquired by Intel, and, um, and that just changed the nature of the company. And so I, I left because it was just not going to be the company that had that kind of opportunity for me anymore.
0: If I can jump in real quick, because I want to I tease out something here a little bit more that you said that really uh, got me interested. You said you just went to the sea levels and said, hey, give me a shot that is not a common feature for people, right? (laughs) Like, you know, how did you approach that? Did you prep for it? Did you have to psych yourself up? Did you take any, uh, you know, I don't know, like do any work or was this just more like this is natural and in you and you're like, hey, I've got nothing to lose. I'm going to go for it. Like, how did that mindset come about for Jennifer?
2: Yeah, it was kind of an output of the work I had been doing in Alliance, Global Alliance and partner strategy because in those jobs, you're always putting together proposals. So, for example, at the time, was well, so virtualization was becoming big, right? So we had VMware and Citrix at the time, and then Microsoft with Hyper-V, you know, was kind of the nascent driver. Of course, the world has changed. I say that, and I'm thinking, wow, does, does anyone even remember that so long ago?
0: Some, some of us do. <laughs>
2: Thank you. Okay. So at the time, it was a big deal. And we knew that that was going to exert a lot of downward pressure on the server or desktop market, right? And that's what AV was licensed on a per server per desktop basis. So, what was how are we going to sell? So, I owned that strategy and got agreements with both Citrix and VMware and Microsoft for McAfee Virtualization Security to be the preferred vendor or even ship with those three yeah. products. And that was a big skill. Learning how to create those kinds of agreements are a big deal. Your CEOs want to be involved. There's a lot of PR the agreements, whatever. And there's a, there's a business case that you have to build. So I had to learn how to build a business case. And that was the skill that I acquired that allowed me, after that project or those projects were over, to say, well, why don't I just create my own business case? So I wanted to build this particular partner ecosystem to get little companies to certify that they would be compatible with MacFeed. It was just this clever strategy to say, how do we continue to gain market share? It was always hard and it still is hard in technology using, you know, compatibility between different software vendors. And so it's just a clever way to build a lot of, you know, sort of mind share around how we were so open and could integrate with everything. And But I put a business case together. And so look, I, you do not need to, if this thing doesn't fly, if it doesn't generate any revenue, fire me. I'm totally fine. And you don't need to give me any headcount. If it does work in the six months, I can show something, then we can talk about.
0: I love it. I love just that go for it. You know, you've you've attached to your identity from the title and the role. I think that's such an important thing to learn in a career. So I love that. All right. So pop the stack. Sorry, jumped in there, but I had to hear and pick up on that thread Bring us back to you. I think you were just leaving McAfee now because of the the merger with Intel and looking for something new.
2: I've been hanging out in um, in Silicon Valley now for a while. Although I lived in Seattle, I always worked for these companies that headquartered there in Cupertino or you know wherever. And so I was hanging out with a lot of VC people and was super interested in how that was working. Of course, I'd known people that had left. Companies and started startups that were being funded by you know the Andreessen Horowitzes of the world and all those folks and some of them did really well. We'd acquired companies. I'd gotten to the founders, and I was just fascinated with that whole space. So Dambala was a venture-backed startup in the cybersecurity space, and I went to go be their VP of alliances and sales, just to figure that out. Like, how does this work? How does a venture back company work? And I learned a lot. It almost killed me. It's a really tough space to be in when you have to be in the board meeting every month explaining why you did or didn't close the deal that was going to help you make payroll. Those are tough moments, but I learned a ton about how that works and how the money works around that. So it was fascinating. But I was commuting to Atlanta the company was headquartered in Atlanta. Mm-hmm. It was founded by a couple of guys out of Georgia Tech. You know, and I was a, a tiny little security company. And one of the lessons I learned at that time was that it was just getting too complex for an aftermarket third-party security product to be as effective as it had been when I first got into the industry. The threats were too complex attack scenarios were, you know, complicated and sophisticated, we got to the point where I, I believe that we really needed to have better security um, within the infrastructure, not just layered on top of it. And that's one of the reasons why Microsoft was very interesting to me, because, you know, what was the operating system that everybody loved to hate, but Windows. Uh, so I was had my eye on Microsoft as a you know, wow, wouldn't that be interesting? Wouldn't it be game changing if they could actually figure out the security
0: well, that's a great segue because, you know, I want to drill in on Microsoft here because you had two really interesting titles there. And the first one was along these lines of security, in particular, chief security officer. And so at least in my mind, you know, there's not a logical, I mean, I get from your background in security, there's there's a tie in, but I think of chief security officer as somebody who is responsible to make sure they're, you know, intruders are kept out, you know, privacy, security, like all of these aspects of Running your infrastructure, but you know you're coming from sales. It, it doesn't necessarily, at least, compute in my mind. Tell me about like what that transition is, and like what's the role and how you went about it.
2: Yeah, it didn't make sense to me either, and it didn't make sense to a lot of people for the entire time I had that. But I really liked the title.
0: It's an amazing title,
2: <laughs> right? I know, but it. I mean, it is and it isn't. It's um, it can be a setup for disappointment if you're not careful because people think you do other than what you do. So I had to get very good at describing myself so I didn't set myself up for a disappointing conversation. It was effectively a technical evangelist role. I was field-facing. However, the interesting twist on this was that what I was really hired to do was to go around the world and talk to governments about why it was actually a very good security decision to move their assets into a public cloud. Even though this is the Edward Snowden era, and everybody was worried that the US government could probably do whatever they wanted when it came to getting data out of a US company's data center. But we needed to we needed to have the world adopt public cloud. So there was a lot of policy work and regulatory work and all of that work required a lot of pretty deep context in cybersecurity and what actual threats are and, you know, how that's managed. So I had all that experience and I knew how business worked and I'd been, you know, in leadership positions for a long time. And so I ended up getting that role because it just, the way it was defined happened to align really well to uh, a lot of the different things I done. Like I, it's a, a, I was able to draw upon a patchwork of different experiences across my, to say in aggregate, if you put all these pieces together, I actually have what it takes to do this job. Now, in reality, I had never, you know, worked on standards before and policies. I didn't know anything about Taiwan or Finland or Australia or China, you know, so I, I learned a ton in that role, but that's essentially what I did. And then I, you know, there's some other things like helping that, put together a go-to-market strategies because at the time again Microsoft was building better security into Windows and um, Azure and we needed to make sure people knew how to talk about it but nobody in Microsoft ever talked about security like they ran out of the room because they knew it was a weak point so you had to turn around a pretty large sales force and get them fluent in that conversation pretty quick and so that was also a lot of my work.
0: It's oh, that's fascinating. And this is one of the things I really love on the show Jennifer is how all of these different pieces of the puzzle then kind of come together. You know, especially later in your career is like you're acquiring all these different skill sets that then lead you into a role like this which, you know, like you said, amazing title and I imagine too this is a because it's so new this leans back into that, you know, your your love of learning and love of of figuring things out. So, chief security officer, and then chief technology officer. So, tell us, you know, a little bit more on that transition, and you know, what were you hoping to get out of it, and what are some of the lessons you learned?
2: Yeah. So, one of the uh, successes in the chief security officer role was an ability to put together strategies. We were a small team of people addressing, you know, a huge market. Microsoft operates in, I think it's 80 or 80 to 100 countries around the world. And we wanted all of them to adopt public cloud. So what is the way in which you can, you know, use a small team of people and, a, you know, a modest budget and get all that done? And so I was able to exercise a lot of my sort of strategy and strategic capabilities. Some of that I'd learned in, at McAfee, putting together business cases to do things I wanted to do. I mean, those are essentially their strategies or clever plans <laughs> to get somebody to do something they didn't know they wanted to do. That's strategy. I worked for the CTO, and then he left, moved to a different position, and the position was open. His boss, the corporate vice president, a woman named Tony Towns Whitley, uh, who's still at Microsoft president of the of their federal space she was new to microsoft and she said I, okay i don't have a cto now can someone step up she said can you just do, take this role on an interim basis and i thought oh my gosh you know probably not <laughs> i don't i know cybersecurity really well i know that space really well i'd always been very diligent about maintaining my technical fluency you know i followed everything but that was cybersecurity microsoft has an entire portfolio and i other than knowing what I need to know to understand vulnerabilities and threats and security, you know, attack surface stuff. It wasn't deep in technology, that kind of technology. So I said, I really, I actually don't think I can do this job, but I'm happy to sit in an interim basis. And she said, I think you can, because I actually think this job is more about strategy than anything else and all the tech you'll learn, but give it a shot. And she said, you know what, here's what I want you to do. Take it for three months. And then at the end of the three months, come back to me and tell me what you think this role should be and how we could do whatever it is you think it you know should do and what kind of results you would generate. Like what could the CTO team really do? And, which was just like, like, I didn't even have no idea what that was, but I figured it out. And, um, and then I competed for the job and I got it because I actually had that three month period of figuring out what this role could be. Like this could be an opportunity for us to drive a very industry-specific view of technology. So we're not just talking about, hey, buy Microsoft Azure. We're talking about how technology solves government's problems, how technology solves healthcare's problems. And so I just, you know, I figured out a strategy and and, um, got that role. That was the CTO for the worldwide industry group, which by then included public sector and then all the other industries. But, you know, like I was telling you earlier in the McAfee roles, When you do something different, you have to be prepared for the fact that the company may not want that for very long. That's the price you pay for the ultimate freedom of being able to, you know, work on whatever you want to work on. You have to be okay with that. And in that CTO role, you know, I effectively created a team that didn't really exist that way before. Like I changed a lot of stuff and then that role went away. So then I moved, um, I interviewed for another CTO role in a Microsoft US, working for Kate Johnson, who's the president. And um, again, kind of pitched some views on technology and, you know, what I thought that role could be. And she gave me some budget and I built that team. Uh, and then I was there for a couple of years and uh, now I'm doing this. But it was always this, um, more about strategy and uh, than it was about, you know, being a fantastic technical
0: resource. What advice would you give our listeners on how to develop their strategy muscles?
2: I think always knowing what you want your in-state to be. The hardest part is usually the vision in my mind. Reverse engineering the plan to get there actually gets easier. But I mean, if you've ever been in a meeting where you know, you're know you a new team and and you say, okay, we're going to have a company mission or what are what are, what are our values? There's Lots of offsites in tech companies. That's part of You know the activity is like figuring out what your mission statement is and your values, and I think people are always really taken aback by how hard that is. It seems like it's going to be easy, and it's not. If I think about the partner ecosystem I built at McAfee, which was the one of the first times I really um, was allowed to go do something new, I just had this vision of wouldn't it be great if all like I could get like a hundred of these little tech companies all putting McAfee logo on their websites and saying we're McAfee certified. Wouldn't that be great? That'd be like subliminal advertising. And, you know, that was my vision. And so I was super clear on that. I painted it out. I thought of it. well, how many companies would you have to do that with in order for it to really matter? You know, then how to get there became easy. And then the CTO role, the strategy was getting really clear on what I thought success looked like. What was this vision of the future, which was tough. It took me a while to figure that out. But once I figured that out, then, you know, okay, well, then I need to do this. And then you do this. And before I do that, I got to do that. You know, so you, you can, that part is not as hard.
0: Yeah. And the vision side is I'm actually leading my team through this right now where I work and it is non-trivial as they say. So bringing this forward, you mentioned you just recently left Microsoft to go out on your own. Get us up to date. What are you doing now? How did you prepare for it? Like what went into, you know, Jennifer making the leap on to her own?
2: The last year was at Microsoft. I spent as much time as I possibly could working on some interesting innovation programs that ended up having me spending a lot of time in a couple different cities. So Louisville, Kentucky, and Houston, in uh, particular, Syracuse, New York as well. So strategy aside, because that's a long story about what I was doing, I ended up um, kind of face-to-face with a lot of community leaders talking about digital skills, because skills, especially if you're coming like Microsoft, skills is probably one of the biggest barriers to a widespread adoption of technology or lack of skills, technical skills. And so the company itself knew that, you know, if they wanted to sell, you know, five times as much Azure, then, you know, the problem was that, you know, the employees in the companies they wanted to sell to needed to learn how to use it. And they don't know how to do that. And, and the skills, so when you start unpacking that problem, you realize it's not really just the employees of, you know, company X those employees started out as students, right? They started somewhere else. And so you can't just address the skills by giving employees, you know, training, you actually have to talk about what happens in universities and community colleges and training programs and elsewhere. And so um, I ended up having a lot of those conversations. And it occurred to me that, you know, I'd spent a couple decades talking to everyone around the world about how great technology was. Like that was that first sales lesson I learned is that, you know, if I could get people to understand how technology could solve some big problems, that was really how you sell. So I have been in the business and made a lot of money, you know, talking about all the wonderful things technology could do. But the reality is that there's a lot of unintended consequences of technology is it can create just like there are socioeconomic divides. It can create a digital divide, you know, that is the line is, is drawn between the people who have access to education or training and the mindset to do it and everyone else. So that became a passion. Like, I, I want to go figure this out. And the more I delved into that, the more I you know, realized that this entire future of work conversation is actually really complicated and technology and economics come together in a very interesting way. And I think we're going to see this again in the next year or so where we're going to continue to have these, you know, what economists like to call jobless recoveries, where the economy kind of gets back to where it was from every other, you know, economic indicator, except for jobs, because the way they got back there is because they automated labor. And so it will leave these middle income people, you know, in an interesting place. So I thought, all right, I've, I mean, I've done everything in corporate America. I've had this wild ride. I've learned a ton But I think it's time to go do something else that is really personally meaningful to me. And I want to go do something in the future of workspace. So that's what I'm doing. The book is about that. Um, It's about how do you survive and thrive in a digital world? And by you, I don't necessarily mean people who are already there. I mean, people who aren't super smart, successful people who just happen to not know anything about technology. Like, what's their path? How do they get there? So that's the book. Um, and I'm advising some startups that are in this space and working on a couple of other projects that I'm keeping quiet for now, but that's what I'm doing.
0: And how's that been, you know, like that transition from in a big corporate office, traveling the world, you know, obviously COVID here is impacting things as well to being out on your own. Like, you know, what's been great about it and what's been scary about it?
2: What's scary about it is that I did not realize how deeply ingrained, like almost at the cellular level, my notion of value is. How did I measure my value in a day? Because it always used to be at, well, I went to work and I did a a bunch of stuff. So now it's so funny. I find myself, I'm like deep in my calendar still, even though I don't need to be deep in my calendar, but I'm deep in my calendar and thinking, okay, I've got This podcast, I'm gonna spend three hours writing. I've got, you know, I do a lot of research every single day, which keeps me sane and also, you know, keeps me relevant, I think. And so I always, you know, have those hours blocked off on my calendar. And I sort of laugh at myself, like, you know, no one's watching. (laughs) You're not getting paid for this. I could not do this, but for my own sanity, I have to still feel like I'm working every single day in order to be creating value. And so that's been tough. I don't know if other people have that experience, but I'm definitely working through my process there. The beautiful thing is that, you know, when you have these big corporate jobs, you spend a lot of your time, as you know, doing all sorts of stuff that is not core to your own personal mission. You know, your yeah. meetings, they don't really matter. And you're looking at financial statements for year over your quarterly, you know, product growth it's just... Like, oh my God, I don't care. Yes, I can, you know, outside you're like, I care, but really inside, I don't care. And it's so nice to be able to just do what I want to do. If I want to spend six hours reading, you know, books by economists, because I got to nail this, like this is, I'm going to figure this out and I'm going to not stop until I kind of have a handle on how all this, you know, works from a macroeconomics perspective and job automation. I can go do that. And I never, who has time to do that when they're in a corporate job? So that's been really fun.
0: That's amazing. Well, and, you know, and perhaps, you know, the future of work is we don't have to work, right? I mean, that's, uh, you know, I think John Maynard and Keynes predicted by the 1960s that most people wouldn't have to work.
2: Yeah. He was a little off on his timing, but yeah.
0: Bringing this on home I want to ask, you know, one more question on just kind of how you think about the bigger picture is whenever I have executives and leaders on the show, I love to delve into how you think about building teams and culture, you know, what's your approach for, for building a successful team?
2: I think you have to find the place inside yourself that actually cares deeply about the people on your team. It's okay that it doesn't come naturally and it's okay that you have to work hard at that with some people. But however you get there, you got to get there. Like we talk about diversity, there's a lot of different metrics, a lot of different ways that you can set a team up for success, you can raise the likelihood that it will be successful. And all of that's great. And so read everything and be a student on how to be a good manager, be a student of leadership, read all the, you know, HBR articles, do all that stuff. Also, find a way to be in a place in yourself where you can look around your conference room table and you can genuinely like and appreciate all the people there because there's, that's kind of the X factor I think always has been for me. And then once you're there, it is easier to do the humble servant thing. That's always worked well for me. That's a style thing. Uh, But I've always been personally gratified by being a leader who acts in a bit of a humble servant capacity you know i'm there to serve the team and it all comes back to i love to say you know it look if no one takes the credit for this idea we all get the credit but the the deal is that none of us can take the credit for this then then it flows to everyone and you know and there's little ways that um you can make that humble servant style leadership work that was one of the things i said but there's you know other little tricks and, and tips and um And I I just believe strongly that that's how that works. And you will, over time, build a network of trust and friendship and loyalty out of that that will pay you dividends for a long, long, long time. There's so many people that I have known for 20, 25 years who I would do anything for and they would do anything for me. And and a lot of my success is, is because of that.
0: That's fantastic. I love that, and I love the, the just the practicalness of this. Of you know, in recognizing that this can be hard, right? Especially, I think for technologists who you know you naturally, I think you alluded to this at the, earlier in the show. You you kind of gravitate to the strength of like understanding the tech, and then when it comes to the people side, that can be new and it can be hard, and you know, especially like just as you make that transition, so. Jennifer, amazing to have you on the show here. One final, super easy question. Where can our listeners best engage with you, buy your book when it's available, learn more from you, perhaps uh, learn the future of work from you?
2: The single best place to start is LinkedIn. I have uh, my own website that you know, everyone can find from, from my LinkedIn profile, but that's where my LinkedIn profile is where I keep most of the activity. I will be talking about the book on my LinkedIn page. And if you know anyone has great ideas about future of work, how technology solves or creates problems, I'd love to hear from them. So it's a the, my favorite thing to talk about.
0: That's fantastic. And for our listeners, uh, we will be sure to link that up in the show notes. Jennifer, thank you so much for taking time out of the day to join us here on Developmentor.
1: Thanks so much for having me. Thank you for taking the time to listen to the Development Tour podcast. If you like the show, please subscribe on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast app. Even better, please leave us a review. If you want to hear older episodes, leave feedback or sign up to be a guest, please visit us at developmentor.com. If you'd like to support the show, there are 3 ways you can help out. 1. Make a donation via Patreon. 2. If you're a software engineer looking for your next gig and wanting to practice interviewing, use our referral link to the interviewing.io platform. And three, buy your next tech book from Manning Publications using our affiliate link. All of those links can be found at developmentor.com support-us. That's S U-P-P-O-R-T-U S. All one word. Most importantly, if you like this show, please tell your friends. Referrals are the lifeblood of any podcast. Finally, we here at tour. hope that each and every episode helps you move one step closer to finding your path.